Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 327, Under New Management. Now look, I'm not going to lie to you all. There were some that were very nervous about the arrival of their new monarch. After all, relations with Scotland hadn't always been easy. It was not so long ago when Scotland and France had been closely allied. And who knows if the French wouldn't stir up trouble. It's just the sort of thing they'd do, all right? The war in Ireland was only just ending too. However, the French ambassador wrote home that after James's proclamation as king, unaccompanied by explosions, that the satisfaction was universal among les Anglais. And that was also true among the Scots, despite the rooted and ancient hostility of the English to the Scots. Though said ambassador failed to mention the rooted and ancient hostility of the Scots towards the English, which seems careless and slightly one-eyed of him. So, relief followed fear, but close on the heels came expectation and hope, and hope, as you know, is the most dangerous of emotions, particularly for an England football fan, where, for the sake of mental help, hope and expectation are to be immediately crushed beneath the booted heel of realism. The hotter type of Protestants knew about the Reformation in Scotland and its better and closer adherence to the Calvinist search for a godly society, and they hoped James would overturn Elizabeth's very strange love of ceremonial and resistance to reform, and help them further reform the English church, just like the Scots had done. Meanwhile, Catholics, conscious that James's mother Mary had been a Catholic, they hoped that James would bring toleration with him. It is fair to say that James was thoroughly looking forward to being king of three kingdoms and a principality. He had acquired something of a reputation for rather wild liberality in Scotland, shelling money and favours out to his courtiers and nobility 
eager to maintain their dignity, so much so that the Scottish Privy Council had tried to take steps to restrain him. Rather unsuccessfully, it must be said. Now, not only could he look any head of any European state squarely in the eye, but he would have access to the surely bottomless wealth of a country five times the size of Scotland in terms of population. The Venetian ambassador, indeed, observed slightly dryly that James intended to dedicate himself to his books and to the chase. As he travelled south, to his immense satisfaction, his progress turned into something of a triumph. His route all the way from Berwick to London was lined with people. Petitioners rushed to press petitions into his hands, urging him to reform, many begging the king to help with economic abuses, particularly the thoroughly ruinous and widespread use of monopolies, which enriched courtiers and restricted trade. Puritans begged for greater reform towards the true church of the godly. Had they read their James's publications, they might have been a little more cautious, since actually he had once described Puritans as the very pests in the church and commonweal. Catholic petitioners came forward too, asking for free use of their religion, i.e. including the absence of recusancy fines, and were initially mildly encouraged when James told them he would not use extremity if they continued in duty like subjects. Essentially, James's attitude to the religion of his subjects, a bit like Elizabeth's, was to demand obedience to the monarchy as the most important requirement, and their souls were up to them. He was much more opposed to executions than Elizabeth as well, however, so I think only 25 people were executed specifically for religion in his reign. So, maybe all looked set fair. However, as Catholics were to discover, outward uniformity was very important to James, and he had no desire to see dissidents, either Catholic or what he described as Anabaptist or Puritans, grow in strength and number. Anyhow, as James reached Westminster in May 1603, carefully avoiding London itself because there was plague there, and tipping up covered in buboes wouldn't have been sufficiently regal, things looked set fair for an encouraging start. James had already issued a proclamation confirming all privy councillors in their post to try and smooth the path of transition, and Robert Cecil had faithfully prepared a proclamation for him to announce suspending a range of monopolies. Ah, so here at last was a king prepared to listen to the complaints of his subjects and do something about them. Within pretty short order, though, the Catholics had been set right on royal priorities. Look, money was tight, and James had not come to England to save a few quid. And so in May, almost immediately therefore, he gave orders that the recusancy fines for non-attendance at church should be levied. This was a slap in the face for Catholic hopes, hopes which had lasted a remarkably short time. Some Catholics started looking for a rather more explosive method of persuasion. Also, there was an interesting little incident at court where a group of Catholic lords refused to attend a religious service with him, being under the Protestant rite, of course. At which James remarked tartly to them that 
he who can't pray with me can't love me. All of this led to the first couple of plots against James. I know you will all be gagging to hear about the gunpowder treason and plot so that you can dust off your school projects and wallow a little in happy memories of school days. Well, hopefully happy memories, unless you did your project during detention or something like that. But as it happens, ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, Guido and the lads were not the first. That honour, if honour it be, goes to an odd little backwater of English history called the By and Main Plots. By, in this case, meaning secondary, and Main, of course, the big plot. And thus it appears there is a hierarchy of treason and sedition. I sigh with apology for the By plotters who have thus been diminished by history. Anyway, the By plot was cooked up by a Catholic priest, William Watson, though a couple of laymen, the Puritan Lord Grave Wilton, also got involved. The idea was this. Let's kidnap the king in June and enforce religious toleration thereby and remove the recusancy laws. The plot didn't go much beyond wild talk, largely because Watson was tripped up by the archpriest controversy. The eagle-eared among you may remember that English Catholics fell out over the subject of Jesuit authority in England and a group named the Appellants objected to the Pope's appointment of George Blackwell as the Archpriest in England. The Archpriest controversy is another interesting little byway because in the course of it, Elizabeth had allowed the Catholic Appellants access to printers as long as they committed to loyalty to her since she rather liked the idea of Catholics falling out with each other. Anyway, too much information, except that it explains why George Blackwell, Archpriest, and Henry Garnet and John Gerard, two Jesuits who will be famous by their connection with the gunpowder treason and plot, shopped their own co-religionist Watson and the plot to the Queen. As a result of their kindly intervention to their co-religionists, Watson went to the gallows in December. So did Lord Grey, as it happens, but at the foot of the gallows... A well-scripted bit of theatre was conducted when the King's mercy and a pardon arrived at the very last moment. Anyway, the bit of knitting that was the by-plot has a loose thread on the end of it, and in pulling on the thread, which was called George Brooke, by the way, the knitting unravelled to reveal another knitted plot, the so-called main plot. Now this was even more threatening to the new King, a plot by Lord Henry Cobham, not just to kidnap James, but to remove him from the throne, kill him and kill Robert Cecil as well, and then replace the king with Lady Arabella Stuart. At which point the rabbit hole yawns wide and swallows us all, I'm sorry. Lady Arabella Stuart is an interesting case, one of those whose life was blighted by the fact that she had a claim to the throne of England, being a descendant of the Lennox clan that included Lady Margaret Douglas. She was brought up for a while in glorious Derbyshire at Hardwick Hall with the Don't Mess With Me Bess of Hardwick, although she made it to the English court as a gentlewoman of good Queen Bess. But she was seen chatting happily to the Earl of Essex, and anyway, Elizabeth wasn't keen to see someone with a claim to the throne marrying and potentially breeding lots of little alternative claimants to the English throne. So, poor Arabella though widely lauded for her intellectual accomplishments and multiple languages, led a limited life. 
Rather later, incidentally, she would then throw up her hands and get married secretly at the age of 35 to an unsuitable boy of 22, William Seymour. He was hunted by the agents of the Crown and Arabella tried to flee to France with him, but she waited too long for her paramour and so was captured and incarcerated in the Tower where she would eventually die. But anyway, back to the previous pit of the Warren, to the main plot. So as it happens, the plotters included the leading conspirator, Lord Henry Cobham. Henry Brooke was his name. And he was brother to George Brooke, implicated in the by-plot. So when the investigator, William Ward, pulled on the loose thread that was George Brooke, the unravelling knitwear led to court Lord Cobham, who, of course, panicked and blurted out a range of wild accusations against one Sir Walter Raleigh figuring that maybe Walt had dobbed him in, which he hadn't actually. In fact, Cobham had written to Arabella about the plot and the chance to get Philip III of Spain involved with men and money. Arabella, very sensibly, had simply laughed, ha, 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 and passed the letter across to Robert Cecil. What a wangled teb. Walter Raleigh was, of course, hauled in. Since Cobham had recovered his wits a little after the first flush of panic, He'd retracted his accusations, though. So if Raleigh had been in good odour, maybe he'd have managed to laugh all of this off. Ha ha ha. However, the odour around Raleigh at this time might be described as of the pigsty variety. A run of failed expeditions and rather grand claims had wrecked his reputation with the Gen pub and he was strongly suspected of atheism in an age where this was categorically not a plus point. Plus... Henry Howard, in good odour of course with the king, following his correspondence to the king when in waiting, had resolutely and repeatedly bad-mouthed Raleigh to James, and Raleigh had at the same time fallen out badly with Robert Cecil too. He had few friends therefore, and the result was a treason trial on the 17th of November 1603. Now this trial of Walter Raleigh became something of a cause célèbre. The prosecution was carried out by the famous and accomplished lawyer, the Attorney General himself, Edward Cook, a name that would be redolent with the legal case for English liberties through the centuries, but also something of a horror personally. Have I told you that he brutally forced his daughter into a politically motivated marriage against her will, and on his death his wife said something on the lines of The world will not see his like again, by the grace of God. I feel I have, but it bears repeating. But, personal arse or not, Cook was a famously talented lawyer. Well, in this trial, he absolutely overreached himself and copy books were being blotted all over the shop until the copy was unrecognisable even beyond the dog-ate-my-homework level. He was mindlessly aggressive and the evidence against Raleigh was wafer-thin. Meanwhile, Raleigh excelled himself, cool, collected, dignified, constantly challenging Cook to produce his accuser. In the end, the jury returned a conviction, on the basis that however dodgy the evidence of Raleigh's actual treason was, he had at least let Cobham ramble on in his wild plans and accusations about James without informing the authorities. But James then repeated his little trick of reprieving Raleigh on the gallows, and he was instead to spend the next 15 years in prison, writing away busily. 
Meanwhile, oddly, his performance at his trial transformed Raleigh's popular reputation from the universal contempt it had to universal sympathy with the gin pub. An observer wrote, Never was a man so hated and so popular in so short a time. Right, well, now we're back at the top of the burrow. So back to the main story, which is, of course, James's arrival on the English throne. But don't you forget that disappointment of Catholics. It might have explosive consequences. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sign them all, sign them all. James had sent lots of reassuring messages as he set off, as I say, confirming that all the existing privy councillors would stay in their posts. But he was also aware that the scope and breadth of the Privy Council had become rather narrow under Elizabeth, and so he was to extend its membership too. Robert Cecil remained at the heart of the government and James's right-hand man, confirmed in post as Secretary of State. By 1605, Cecil will have been made the Earl of Salisbury, and so now we have that traditional problem of key players changing their names. I am so sorry for English history. Um, but let's call him Salisbury right now, shall we? A little early for the purist, but easier for podcasters and their listeners. After all, in two or three hundred years, we'll have another Salisbury as Prime Minister in high Victorian England, so I should get you all used to it. So joining um, Salisbury were Henry Percy, Earl of You-Know-Where. Well, Northumberland, since we've not heard of the Percys for a while. Thomas Howard was soon created Duke of Suffolk, and Henry Howard, James's correspondent during his time in the waiting room, received his due reward and was created Earl of Northampton. You might note a lot of peer creation going on already. This will be a feature, I have to tell you. James also came with a group of trusted Scottish advisers, as you do in these circumstances, a bit like a new CEO arriving at a business, or football coaches coming with their trusted staff attached as part of the deal. He appointed five Scots to the Privy Council, though the positions were more symbolic than anything. However, the English Privy Council was to get used to having one or two Scots frequently at meetings. While we're on it, the departure of James for London, of course, created stresses and strains in Scotland. Although the court was less important in Scotland, Scotland has in fact been described by a historian as all country and no court, though that's putting it a bit too strongly, really. But the court was still a centre of patronage, and the lack of the king's presence was keenly felt. It also meant that for Scottish lords who wanted to stay connected to the royal source of influence and patronage, they faced a tricky choice. They could make the 800-mile round trip from Edinburgh with all the expense, or they could actually move to London with all the expense. Someone once calculated that the relative wealth of the average Scottish peer was equivalent to the average Yorkshire gentry, so moving to London was a big decision. Now James, and indeed his son Charles, kept management of Scotland and England strictly separate despite James's passion for the idea of a combined kingdom of Britain. He maintained a Scottish Privy Council in Edinburgh and was lucky or clever enough to have two leaders in the earls of Dunbar and Dunfermline who were both skilful administrators and keen to extend royal power. James was to proudly say that he'd managed his northern kingdom so well that he could rule it at a distance by the pen. 
which did have some truth in it. But in reality, even he would come to realise that he began to lose knowledge and contacts over time. And that would lead to some decisions that led to problems for his son. It also meant that the advisers around him in London were not necessarily the best informed about the very latest in Scottish politics. However, where the Scots really won out was in appointments to the royal household. Over 40% of the higher court appointments in the royal bedchamber went to Scots. As you can imagine, this led to complaints from the English about favouritism and lack of access to the ear of their king, but for the Scots it was important. Because they worried, as one of them wrote, that our kings will become Englishmen, born in England, residing in England. They will naturally prefer Englishmen as their attendants and courtiers. So the presence of Scots in the royal household and the separation of privy councils helped alleviate that fear a little bit. But it was a source of resentment that would grow and grow boil-like, because James was an incontinent man, financially speaking, and members of the bedchamber were not slow to take advantage of said incontinence, persuading the king to provide them with pensions. Earlier in his reign in Scotland, James had been keen to support his nobility financially in Scotland, and now, with all this lovely English lolly available, there seemed no impediment to doing it in spades. So in 1607 already there was to be an outcry when it was discovered that James had paid the debts of two Scottish lords and one English lord to the massive tune of £44,000, no less. And meanwhile, it was laconically observed that payment of the king's debts were to be delayed by two years. It's not just that this led to a deal of argy-bargy between Scots and English, after all, what's new about that, but it began to lead to a serious sense of weariness in the English Parliament that if they voted a subsidy for the king, it would not be spent wisely on matters of state, but frittered away on people, those with the warmest lips, situated closest to the royal lug. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Anyway, that's in the future. For the moment, another person joined James, the Queen, Anne of Denmark. Anne was pregnant when James left and so stayed behind, but she was determined that she would not leave for England without her son, Henry, being by her side. Henry, you might remember, had been removed from her brutally to be looked after by the Earl of Mar. Now, Anne was nobody's pushover, so she turned up at Stirling and tried to take him. And during all that stress, she sadly miscarried. But she stuck at it. And she won this particular battle. She was able to travel south together with her nine-year-old lad and be reunited. By July, she and James had been crowned at Westminster, though still avoiding the city of London due to plague. And it wouldn't be until March 1604 that James made a formal entry into London. All the crowds cheering, waving and all that sort of thing. 
Now, a royal consort was a novelty to England, of course. They'd not had one for a while. And in Anne, they got someone who seems to have been quite estranged from her husband by 1603, although there was no great public falling out. But James seemed more interested in his courtiers, in hunting and, you know, kinging. And Anne seems to have thoroughly disapproved of some of his carrying on. The king conducts himself so ill in every respect that I expect an early and evil result. Which is a comment that could be described with some justice as indiscreet. But then in Anne, the English did not get a cipher. Anne was very proud of her Habsburg ancestry and had no intention of being sidelined. In matters of honour, she was very sensitive, very touchy, declaring that honour goes before life, I must ever think. There's a tale that when her brother Ulrich was on an extended visit, he assumed that as her bro, he could obviously wander into her private chambers unannounced. Anne did not agree this met with her her status and honour, and as a result, when he did it, she wouldn't speak to him for two months. And I must admit, I have observed similar responses to sibling intrusion these days too, as part of the parenting process. The Venetian ambassador noted that Anne was someone who had both a good and a bad side on which to be, and that she was full of kindness for those who support her, but on the other hand, she is terrible, proud, unendurable to those she dislikes. However, Anne established herself and her court as a leading cultural patron. She set up shop at Somerset House in London and carried out building works there and elsewhere. She quickly became regarded as the head of the kingdom's noblewomen and positions at her court were highly sought after. And she fulfilled a practical as well as a cultural function, a forum to bring Scottish and English nobility together. She established an art collection, loved music, patronising musicians and laying on frequent events. She was particularly noted for laying on extensive and complicated masks which combined ballet and drama, music and scenery and employed such luminaries as Ben Johnson and Inigo Jones. Last couple of things to say, now that she was off the leash she had quite an influence on Henry's cultural development. The same seems to apply to her second son Charles When she died, it hit Charles very hard indeed, since it was observed that she having always been to him a tender and indulgent mother. And Charles, of course, would develop a passionate interest in collecting and commissioning works of art, just like Mum. Very controversially, Anne would leave her estate to her son rather than to her husband, which speaks something of the estrangement between them. The other thing is, that Anne remained a Catholic, in secret though, so she was in effect a church papist. She had Protestant chaplains, attended Protestant services and so on, but attended Catholic services in secret, secret being firmly in inverted commas, not much of a secret, more of a metaphorical fig leaf. But it did mean that she did not thereby build up much of a centre for Catholic worship or focus or indeed employ many Catholic religious, and this was sometimes a matter of great irritation to her priests, who were given to withholding communion from her in protest and punishment. Okay, so we are all set up, I think. King is in place, Queen ensconced, Privy Council and household sorted Scots and English at court, 
And so we are all ready for the first set piece of the reign, which you might think would be the Parliament of 1604. But there, I'm afraid, I'm going to have to ask you to hold your horses. Because we are in fact going to talk first about the Hampton Court Conference of January 1604. Because I know how much you love religion. We've seen something of James's religious approach already. Not keen to persecute, focused on loyalty to the king and conformity rather than a deep search into the souls of his subjects. But, as Catholics had discovered, nor was he keen to see Catholics increase in number and he distrusted the extremes of Protestants as well, which we should probably not call Puritans because it was really what James called Anabaptists to whom he objected, or essentially separatists from the Church of England. Nonetheless, James was a thoroughgoing Calvinist by theology, don't be misled by his lack of desire to persecute Catholics. He was proud of his brain and its contents, considering himself, like Henry VIII, a bit of an expert in theological debate, and in England, of course, he'd walked into a situation in many ways closer to his liking. A church of which he was supreme governor, yum yum, with bishops and all of that sort of thing. Not, I should stress, that he considered the English church to be superior to the Scottish variant by any means. He was something of a connoisseur of sermons, for example, and considered the English church far less expert and ministers less well-educated than they were in Scotland. And so he established the court as a centre of expertise for preaching to help develop the art in England. So, in his view, the Scottish church was a much purer version. Anyway, the historical debate about religion at this time in England tended once to focus around the perceived divisions in the English church. So one view was that the civil wars later would be in part a consequence of remaining divisions in the church between the Puritans who wanted reform and the conformists who were happy with what they had. The pendulum appears to have swung to a position where actually unity in the Elizabethan church is more stressed. It's noted that Puritans were almost all participants in the national church rather than separists from it. And generally the story is, though still debated I think, that it seems that by the end of Elizabeth's reign Puritans remained firmly within it. But there were folks like the followers of Rutland's favourite son, Robert Brown, who were called Brownists and appeared from 1580. Well, I say favourite, I doubt there are any many who would know about the chap in Rutland these days, but hey. The Brownists were distinctly separatists, but they were a small movement, it has to be said. Just enough to put the wind up places where wind has no business to be as far as the Church of England was concerned and would, as I understand it, be represented on the Mayflower, which I'm told is some sort of boat that went somewhere. There had also been the Mar Prelate controversy, a period of theological conflict in the 1580s, but Mar Prelate had been squished thoroughly and under the Archbishop Whitgift, separatism had largely disappeared. With some debate, Whitgift had enforced his three articles in 1583, which defined the Church of England as firstly, acknowledging the royal supremacy, secondly, the Book of Common Prayer, and thirdly, the 39 Articles of 1563. Nonetheless, despite this story, the pressures were there in the church, and James holds a reputation for travelling a clever and balanced path between them, balancing and keeping on board those who favoured a full-blooded Calvinism, and at the other end of the scale, 
those attracted by the teachings of Arminius, with their focus on ceremony and modified beliefs with regards to predestination. So, James decided to set the tone by arranging a healthy debate at Hampton Court, where selected Puritans would be able to make their case against the church and the need for reform. James was not impressed by the job the Puritans did at said debate. In fact, he said they debated so poorly that had he been their tutor, he would have caned their buttocks. James roundly and firmly rejected the idea that presbyters, elders of the parish, should exercise authority alongside the bishops, though that, of course, was what had come to pass in Scotland. James was committed to the authority of bishops. And so it's here that he produced his super-famous Bon Mot, so famous that I think it even makes it into 1066 and all that, of no bishop, no king. He reconfirmed Whitgift's three articles as well. There are a few other outcomes of the conference. In February, he issued a proclamation that all Jesuits and Catholic clergy should immediately leave the realm. Another negative signal to the Catholic community, of course. A revised Book of Common Prayer appeared in 1604, with just a few differences, and a proclamation was issued commanding conformity to the Book of Common Prayer according to the laws of the realm heretofore established. And so once more, it's business as usual, please. Plus, now here's one if you have any sort of Anglican upbringing whatsoever. Everyone agreed that a new version of the Bible was required. The most popular Bible in use was the Geneva Bible, which came with Calvinist add-ons, such as annotations suggesting that godly resistance to ungodly monarchs was acceptable, which put more wind up, more unspecified parts of the regality. And the use of language such as congregation and elder, rather than church and priest. The Hampton Court Conference wanted something that aimed to be as inclusive and broadly acceptable as possible. And so was born the idea of one of those cultural as well as religious icons, the King James Bible of Authorised Version. Now a lot of ink has been spilt over that, I suspect. It would appear in 1611, so maybe we'll talk more about it then. The language, I have to say, is quite catchy somehow. Archbishop Whitgift died shortly after the conference to be replaced by George Bancroft. Bancroft would be in place until 1610 and he carried on Whitgift's approach of enforcing conformity within the church while also promoting the quality of preaching. Ministers were required to subscribe to Whitgift's three articles after the Hampton Court Conference and although the Privy Council tried to stay the severity of Bancroft's hand, 75 ministers refused to do so and left the church, but out of 9,000 parishes, that's quite a small hill of beans. Not much more than a cassoulet, really. I might cheat, if you don't mind, just for the moment, and jump ahead a bit on the church. Essentially, as I've mentioned, James trod quite a clever line between the various theological scholars. After Bancroft died, he was replaced as Archbishop of Canterbury, by a reassuringly Calvinist George Abbott. James patronised evangelical clergy, and most of his bishops were Calvinist in theology. The historian Patrick Collinson remarked that the tide of evangelical Calvinism all but submerged the differences between conformity and dissent. 
he did fail effectively to tackle pluralism. Pluralism was that practice of giving priests more than one parish to look after, which meant they could augment their income, but of course provide a far less effective service to their parishioners. Part of the problem there was that over 30% of church livings had been half-inched by lay patrons, which meant they skimmed off much of the tithes, leaving little for the vicar. But most bishops were active, preached regularly, and educational standards among the clergy rose substantially. James was flexible in appointments as far as theology was concerned, so alongside Calvinists were others with Arminian leanings. Lancelot Andrews, Bishop of Winchester, and Richard Neal at Durham, for example. The result was a theologically flexible and broad-based church, and by the middle of his reign, James could look with some satisfaction at the quality and harmony in his church. Again, that's not to say the old pressures had gone, but the pressure for separatism was titchy-tiny. Oakley Doakley, the end of another episode. In two weeks' time, we will be back in the Parliament building, watching James get to grips or otherwise with the English version of that institution, and he'll be mixing it up with Edwin Sands. Meanwhile, I'd like to thank you all very much for listening and being so attentive, or at least those of you who don't use the podcast as ambient noise to lull you to sleep. But even then, thanks for choosing my form of ambient noise. Thank you for all those who comment and review and all of that. I really appreciate and it does keep me going when I get messages. So, until next time, good luck and have a hoot. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 